Kyorokoto, this is something a little bit different. This is actually a public recording of one of my lectures that I gave recently. Uh, it was at the Christchurch Art Gallery and it was in conjunction with an artist called James Oram who had put on an exhibition called Bispectral Hands. Uh, and the art gallery got in touch and said, hey, we've got this uh, exhibition on and we would love it if you came and talked to it. Now, I explained that I'm not an artist and I don't want to talk about the art. I actually talk about that in my talk, um, but more about the way in which the artist may have been inspired by some of the insidious things that marketers can do. Uh, a lot of it is built upon this idea that we don't know what impact marketers have, the psychology that presents itself and that is exploited in order to drive or exploit consumption. Uh, and so this was not a commentary on the art or the quality of the art, but more a commentary on the systems and structures that surround us that the artist James had used in his exhibition. Uh, I really encourage you to get down to the art gallery and see some of their other exhibitions. If you're ever in Ototaiki Christchurch, I really encourage you to uh, get involved with the work that James does as well. This really cool way of exploring different marketing pressures through artwork it is quite a phenomenal um, approach. So hopefully you enjoy it. It is a longer podcast by my standards because it is a lecture. Remember, I am an academic and so I'm used to doing these long lectures, um, but hopefully you enjoy it. I haven't uploaded the slides. Uh, I try to keep it as engaging without the visual cues, but if you need the visual cues or you wanna hear more about the exhibition so you can kind of visualize uh, what I'm talking about, then, then just get in touch and I'm sure I'll be able to upload them somewhere so people can engage with it. All right, kakiteano. Every different kind of a field. And um, so we had a dig around and we found that Dr. Akant Beer um, is really a specialist in looking at marketing and social media and the ways that um, media are manipulated, which are some of the ideas that sort of drove the exhibition a little bit. I will say that for James, um, there's not sort of a, a leaning one way or the other and saying how we should be thinking about that marketing but just drawing our attention to it. Um, but I'm really excited that Akant has agreed to come today and share a little bit more on some of those ideas that um, we don't often sort of dwell on. So I'll give a bit of an introduction for those who don't know Akant. He is a professor of marketing in the Department of Management, Marketing and Entrepreneurship at the University of Canterbury. His work looks at the role that marketing can play in both driving social change and community well-being, as well as what impact digital technology plays in consumer interactions and their sense of identity. His research has been published in numerous international journals, such as the Journal of Marketing Management, the European Journal of Marketing, and the Journal of Public Policy and Marketing. Akant is also the Associate Dean of Postgraduate Research, supporting the learning journey, learning journey of UC's research students and supervisors. So it's a real treat to have um, such a prestigious voice here today for us, and I will, without further ado, pass on. But um, maybe at the end, um, I can also be around to answer any questions that you might have from other angles, but hopefully um, we'll have a good conversation, I think. So join me in welcoming Akant, and thank you for coming. Cool. Um, such a lovely introduction. I hate being introduced because a key thing about marketing is expectation management. Uh, and, and when you make someone look really good, then they have to live up to it. So 
if you make someone look really bad, then you know, being average makes you look amazing. Um, it's a real honor to be here, and thank you both to Nick at the back and to Mel for, for inviting me to be part of this exhibition. Um, uh, it's, it's not an area that I do a lot of, talking at art galleries. This is my first time. Uh, but this is such a powerful piece of work around, and so I thought I'd provide my perspective. So the, the co-popper for today is to, to look at um, understanding the ways in which marketing does affect us and impact us in society, how it revolves around us, um, maybe looking at some of the ways in which it's often hidden as well, and we don't realize it's there, but I also want to spend plenty of time allowing for some kororo at the end, some fakaro from yourselves, uh, having your thoughts on this, what you've experienced. Now, I need to start uh, with, a, with some limitations and a proviso. Um, I am not an artist. This is literally what my art teacher said about me in my report card. Despite his passion, he lacks any natural talent, and his drawings of the human form are rather immature. <laughs> I don't remember what drawings of the human form I did, but as a young boy, I can guess. Uh, <laughs> um, uh, this is this. Some people might look at this and go, "Well, this is awful. This is dehumanizing. This is this is terrible." No, I, I like this sort of teaching. Just tell me straight up. Um, he went further and at the parent-teacher interview told my parents, "Do not waste any money on art supplies for this boy." <laughs> I am not an artist. Yanisha, my wife, is up here at the front, and, and we were reflecting this morning that we went to paint and sip. You know, the kind of like the paint by numbers thing. Uh, and, and mine started off really well, and then as I sipped more, it got the painting kind of got worse. Hers was amazing. She's like, I can actually do this. I'm actually pretty good. I'm a great, I'm like, I am as dog shit as when I was a kid, you know, <laughs> terrible. But I had a great time, it was the experience. Um, but it gets worse than this, because I was looking through my HR profile at the University of Canterbury, and under, it's a bit hard to say, under my talent profile, it says no data exists. <laughs> I'm like, even my boss thinks that I'm talentless. Now, I've put this up for a very specific reason. Um, this is fake. This, this isn't actually true, because if I gave you context to this, you will see that the actual thing that says there is that under languages, it says no talent exists. But for the purposes of a joke and to get a giggle out of you to start this, I photoshopped it. I also didn't like the framing of what it was, because there's a lot of white space, and this is meant to be, so I condensed it down. And what took me like 30 seconds of photoshopping, I was able to get a giggle out of you. And no one would have known any different because I hadn't provided any context had I not shown you that second picture. And I think that's part of what marketing tends to do. Let's start at the very beginning, though, and, and look at some of the people who have talked about this far more than I have and are, are real um, movers and shakers. So if you want to read more about this, can I really strongly encourage Martin Lindstrom's books, both Biology and Brandwashed? Both are really good books to help you understand how marketing psychology is used to try and infiltrate what goes on in your, your mind, your behaviors, to try and encourage you to do the things that hopefully marketers want you to do, to act and behave in the way they want. Um, more recently, Jonah Berger, who is a consumer researcher as well, has written a, a book on Contagious that is about more about digital and how to go viral and things like that. And I'm going to be drawing on ideas from all of these, but also my own experiences and my own research. Um, I am a consumer psychologist, I, I am a consumer researcher, I uh, describe myself as a professional people watcher, I get paid by your taxes to watch people, so thank you greatly, um, but then write about it. Now, I have chosen 
to use that to try and help people. So I work with the Mental Health Foundation. I work with the Fatu Order and the health system. I work with a lot of charities around the place to try and use those ideas and those sort of manipulative targets and ways of doing things to encourage you to do hopefully the right thing or the thing that's healthier for you. While you could use the same tools and techniques to hurt people, similar with online structures, online communities, and we'll go through a bit of that as we go. Um, with regards to public media, and this is where Bernays's work was most notable, uh, there's a great book out there by Ryan Holiday um, called Me, Trust Me, I'm Lying, Confessions of a Media Manipulator. And it's a really open, honest book and talks about how he specifically manipulated people and organizations to do what he wanted by saying things they wanted to hear to build that narrative to the point that people were doing things that he wanted, he had them in control. Really, really interesting stuff and very brave for someone to basically front up and say, this is what we do as a living. Not everybody does this but a lot of people can't do this. Um, this is Bernays, and I want to start with this. And uh, James has uh, said that he's based a lot of the, the, the artwork around Bernays' work. Um, he's been described as the father of public relations, uh, and he's been quoted as saying, the masses are irrational and subject to herd instinct. The masses being us, by the way. Um, and documented how careful and skillful manipulation of public relations can affect social change. And again, he wrote a book about this. Now, this is early 20s sort of work. And that kind of brings me on to the first piece. Now, I do not want to be here to explain James's work because I'm not an artist. But my understanding of it and how it's described to me, so that piece at the back of the room there, the box, it kind of looks like a perspex box and with some rumblings going on. That's actually, uh, that's actually vocalizing Bernays's work, some of his lectures being poured through there. But it's almost inaudible. You can't hear it, it's just mumbling. But on top of there, there's a little pump bottle of water. And you can see the ripples within there. That you can see the effect of his words. You can see the effect of what's happening, even though you can't make out what is there, what's happening. And that is at the heart of what a lot of manipulative marketing practices are doing. It's got so normalized, and that pump bottle looks so out of place that I believe some people have tried to pick it up and walk off with it, thinking that's not meant to be there. That's how insidious this stuff can be, and that it, you, you think this is, this is normal. You just don't think this is meant to be part of an art piece or anything like that, but those ripples are happening, and you are hearing them, and the effects are being felt. So that's really, really powerful in my mind to explain a few of those things. So I want to start in this sort of space. Now, one of Bernays' most famous campaigns was called Torches of Freedom. And it was a way of trying to encourage women to smoke, because a lot of women weren't smoking enough for his liking. So he was hired by the tobacco industry to encourage women in particular to smoke. And so he used the growing sentiment of uh, female emancipation and uh, wanting more um, autonomy and rights. And he said, you smoking is a symbol of your freedom and your emancipation, and you can symbolize that through this behavior. Guess what? A lot of women tapped into that very quickly and started smoking. One of those included his wife, his wife who took up smoking. So even though Edward never smoked in his life, he was unable to stop his wife from quitting her pack-a-day habit. That's how powerful this stuff can be. So when I work on the other side, trying to encourage people to quit smoking or not smoke, whatever, it is far harder than encouraging people to start. And marketers know this. So this is where some of the same techniques, even though you feel they should be able to be used the other way, sometimes not as powerful. I want to give you one quick example of this. Uh, I, Mel gave me a time limit, and I'm just going to keep talking. So we might be done early. We might be done late. I don't know. I apologize if you want to leave. It's no different from class at UC. <laughs> no. <laughs> um, 
when I was at, in the UK, I was at the University of Bath, and I was asked by a few schools there to come and talk to some of their students and encourage them to quit smoking. They'd had a few people in their school who were smoking and said, could you stop them smoking? I'm like, sure, when can I meet with your students and talk with them? And they said, no, 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 just put up some posters and that will stop them smoking. I'm like, that is not how it works. So I sat down and I spent some time sp um, speaking with some teenagers and we talked about what motivates them, what drives them. Didn't even talk about smoking at all. What are the things you want? And this might not be universal, but this is very much the same for our teenagers now. They're in that flux space when you're like between 12 and 16 of still being children, not having that adult autonomy, but wanting to be seen as independent, wanting to have a voice, wanting to be uh, independent in some way, wanting to be valued for your own self. And so we put together a whole campaign. One of these uh, included this quote from Joseph Cullum, which put up a whole bunch of slogans and things that these people had said and a video accompanying, putting them all together saying things like, you know, uh, babies born to women who smoke are smaller, and some women would prefer to have smaller babies, which is an actual quote that the CEO said. And young people in particular go, well, of course that's dumb. You're killing people. That's a really idiot, idiot thing. We put all these quotes together and said, every time you smoke, you're just believing their lies and making them richer. Don't be so gullible. Now, that played into their hands really quickly, and they hated being lied to. They hated being taken for a ride, and a lot of kids smoked, uh, stopped smoking very, very quickly because they wanted to retrieve their autonomy back. Now, I didn't say, ha-ha, you're gullible because you've just believed me in one sort of ad campaign sort of thing because that would undo that whole work, but you kind of get the sense that what we try to do as marketers is tap into your motivations, tap into your identity, tap into the things that drive you, and use that hopefully to get what we want, whether that is profit or whether that is behavior, whether that is sentiment, whatever else it might be. Very, very well ingrained. This stuff goes back centuries. People have been studying humans and looking at humans for centuries. Uh, more recently, in the 20th century, social psychologists, cognitive psychologists want to try and understand and measure why people do things certain ways and try to put those effects together. Even more recently, kind of from the 70s onwards, marketers have picked up social psychology and said, here's how we can use those effects and translate them into cash. And even more recently, in the last 10 years or so, you have economists saying, hey, we've come up with this new thing called behavioral economics. And you know, marketers and social psychologists going, we've been doing this for centuries, mate. You know, what, what's, what's going on, this new thing? But they're effectively the same thing. How can we understand people? How can we use that in order to drive behavior whichever way we want? So understanding human motivation is at the heart of affecting change. I want to give you a couple of quick examples that are very famous experiments. This is a little hard to see, but this is an experiment run with The Economist magazine. And this is called the decoy effect. And they put out a subscription model, and they said, the economist.com subscription, online subscription, 59 US dollars. If you want to have the print and web subscription, it's $125, okay? Now, another group of people saw this one, where it's the economist said, economist.com subscription, 59 US dollars, same as before. Print subscription on its own, $125. And then print and web subscription, $125. That middle one of a print subscription without the website access is a decoy. No one ever expected anyone to buy that. But by putting that in place, you actually see a significant change in behavior. So with the first one, when they only saw two options, the $125 and the $60 one, 68% of people went for the cheaper option. Just give me the online. I don't need the print. When they saw all three options, that dropped to 16%. Hardly anyone got that. 
Nobody obviously wanted that print option. Who wants $125 for print? Oh, you want print, okay. However, when you have the option of print and web, now that looks like good value. And what we see is a massive increase in people going for that option just because this decoy is there. So even though you may not use the web, having that flexibility and wanting that gives you both the print and the web. I am winning. Haha, <laughs> look at you suckers. I'm not going to give you the print. No, they have suckered you into this. Other examples of decoy effects, if you go to a fancy restaurant and you see an item on um, the menu that looks ridiculously expensive, then you kind of go, why would anybody do that? And they have done this in, um, on purpose. So there's some restaurants which will have a $400 menu item, lobster, wagyu steak, everything like that, knowing hardly anyone would buy that except for those idiots that show off and that's great, gross profit, fantastic. But very few people do that. But the $80 steak now looks like really good value because you really want the $400 value one but no one ever gets that. But the $80 one, whoo. Now without the $400 one there, you kind of go, who's spending $80 on a steak? Don't be stupid, that's ridiculous. I say this knowing that my best, my favorite steak place uh, for my wife and I is Bessie's, and we do share the $80 steak there. The T-bone the is fantastic. Uh, but we share it, it's you know, $40 a head, it's much better. And it's, look at me trying to explain the value. Backtrack quickly. Okay, you kind of see what I'm trying to say that people know these effects, effects exist, people know these things happen, and they use that to try and trick you into thinking you're getting a good deal, trying to trick you into doing what you think is better for you. In reality, it is better for the marketer. Um, we want to feel in control. It's a very common, universal feeling. Very few people out there really love chaos all the time. Some people thrive on it, some people want to enact chaos, but most people kind of go, I want to feel chaos and I want to be out of control on the roller coaster, but then I want to be back on my feet. That is not how I want life to be all the time. And marketers know this, and they play on this as well. So they tell you, you have lots of choice. When you go to the supermarket, you have all this choice. In reality, you have a choice between eight to 10 companies who produce hundreds and hundreds of brands. This is more US-based, but the similar effect happens here. We kind of think, I don't want to go to New World, I want to go to Pack and Save. It goes to the same place. It just uses choice in a different way to make you put money into people's pockets. So use of control to encourage that. Um, we want to belong. Very few people really want to upset everyone around them. Again, there are anarchists out there who want to upset people for the sake of upsetting people. There are people who want to be nowhere around of people, but those tend to be the minority. Most of us want to be in control and want to belong. This is an example uh, from an experiment that was uh, run in the 60s and 70s. And what they did, they put, um, a, asked a person to go into an elevator, into a lift, and then they had four or five actors or confederates around them that would just turn in different directions. So even the doors in front of them, everyone would walk in and then look to the wall. And the poor person that was being experimented on goes, oh, I don't want to be the only one not looking at the wall, so they look at the wall, okay? I do this when I'm bored, in that when there are two doors in an elevator, I will purposely turn to the one that I know is wrong, just to see if the people who aren't sure will turn around with me. And then I turn around and walk out the right door afterwards. And they look at me thinking, I'm the idiot. And I'm like, ha ha, you actually were so desperate to fit in that you, these are the, this is what your taxes pay for, my apologies. <laughs> but this is replicated multiple, multiple times. There are other versions of this where they have like eight people lined up and there's one person there that doesn't know about this. And they'll ask them, out of these three lines, which one is the longest? And all seven people say clearly the wrong answer. And the eighth person at the end goes, I don't want to be the only one that thinks it's line A. I will say line C like everyone else. 
Now, even though we all want to believe we're independent, in control, mindful, agency-filled human beings, when the crowd is doing one thing, it's very hard to go against the tide. That feeling of belonging is powerful, and marketers know this. That whole eight out of 10 dentists prefer Colgate is a great example of trying to say, the experts do this. Your friends should be doing this. Look at all these other people really happy drinking Pepsi Cola, whatever else it might be. You want to be part of this. You want to feel like you belong. Uh, I'm gonna use this inappropriately, but this is a, this is a, a great example of confirmation biases and group conformity as well. This whole idea that sometimes something that you believe is much easier to take in than something that might actually change, alter your perspective. I do a lot of work, like Mel said, in online systems, online cultures, online spaces. And a lot of my work the last few years has been taken up with these online groups, which come up with wonderful theories um, th and, and different perspectives on life, which are hard to understand at times, but it's fascinating space. And a lot of it is around group conformity. How can we feel like we belong? How can we feel like we're in power? How can we feel like we are somehow in uh, knowledge and truth that other people don't know about? And that can really help people to feel closer together. One of the hardest parts of breaking out of these conspiracy groups is ego. People find it very difficult to say, I've been sucked in for five or six years, and now I need to apologize to all those people that I have tried to suck in as well. And so it's really hard for the people to go, I, I can't admit that, that I've wasted all this time, energy. I can't admit that I've lied to all these people, so I'm going to double down in my community. And it's really hard to pull those people out. Some of the things that, that we do when we have friends, and we do have friends who have gone down rabbit holes in different ways, is just to love them, just to say, you always have a friend in me. We can't talk about this stuff, but we are always going to hang out. We're always going to spend time together. So they knew, know that there's always someone who's there. And hopefully they know that if they do come and say, I'm really sorry, that was dumb of me. I'm not going to go, ha, I told you, loser, because that actually pushes them back into that group because they want to belong. Um, abusing this group conformity is really, really common to help things go viral. This is a very simple formula. Does anyone know how to go viral online? It's actually super simple. It's actually only made up of two things. Um, and it is the likelihood of being seen times the likelihood of being shared. All right? And that is the likelihood of something going viral. As simple as that. That is the simple formula. It's a little bit more complicated, obviously. There are different factors in there. So when it comes to likelihood of being seen, if you want to post something that goes viral, you've got to post it in a place that other people are going to be. You can't just put it on your blog that you and your mum read and no one else. You have to put it out there on Twitter. You've got to put it in Facebook groups or whatever else, or out on Facebook. You've got to put it on Instagram. Um, is your target audience there? Are you talking to people that want to take part in this conversation, who want to know about this? If I am posting stuff on Twitter that nobody on Twitter is talking about, then obviously they're not going to talk about it. That's not going to get um, transmitted out. Likelihood of being shared, do people there have opinions they'd like to share? Are you speaking to a very passive, disengaged audience? Or are those people like, yes, I like that. I want to have thoughts about this, and I want to talk to you about that. If you can do that, you can exploit the algorithm and encourage people to start talking more about it. If my wife posts something publicly on her LinkedIn page or something like that, and I comment on it, it actually goes to more of people, not just her friends, but more of my friends as well. And now it starts to encourage. So you've got to get people to talk about things. That's why whenever you see people post stuff online, and especially those from news agents and stuff like that, or, or different groups, they will end with a question mark. They want you to reply. Who else has seen something like this? 
Who else wants blah, 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 blah? How do you feel about this? Trying to encourage some corridor because that will help them rise up the algorithm. And the last part, do their friends, do they think their friends want to see it? Is it important enough or interesting enough that someone might share it to the rest of their group? Now, that's where you can do something and go, I think my wife would really enjoy this event. Let me share it onto her page. And now there's some traction, not just from me and my friends, but her and her friends. But if you're part of a conspiracy theory group or someone who's trying to get something going viral, you start sharing it out in multiple spaces, flooding the airwaves, trying to get somewhere space that people might catch on and buy into this. And that is how things go viral. Now, on top of all this, as a great academic, there is a whole bunch of error and luck, all right? Some things just don't work, some things do. You cannot use this formula and all of you go viral. If you did, I wouldn't be in this job. I'd be making millions teaching people how to go viral. But there are parts of this that link together in order to make the basis or the structure and the basics of how to go viral. Using that is, has been exploited because people want to share ideas with their friends. They want to share ideas with other people. And as a result, things do tend to go viral. And as more things go viral, more people share it, and more people happen, in the background, all the stuff we don't see, the algorithm is working away saying, Akan looked at that. Even if Akan looks at it because he's studying it, it floods my newsfeed. Even though Akan studied it because he was doing um, some, he was looking at going, that's a stupid idea, it's still gonna flood my newsfeed. So we have to be super mindful about this. I'm gonna talk about a few uh, more things and then talk a little bit more about the artwork here and my reflections on how they link in. If you are thinking uh, about um, how, what you can do online or how to improve your own understanding and ability to counteract fake news, misinformation, disinformation. University of Cambridge um, psychologists have put together this, this uh, thing called the bad news game. And the bad news game effectively teaches you how to spread misinformation. It teaches you all the different tools and techniques. So you start with, well, you've got to develop a following. Then you have to use emotive language. And then you have to be purposely divisive. And, then, and it goes through step by step on how you can start and be a conspiracy theorist and grow. And it shows you, well done on that answer. Not the best one, but you gained 40 followers. OK, had you done this, you would have gained 80 followers. And it kind of shows how impactful your posts are and stuff like that. The whole point of this is to hopefully make you more mindful about the techniques and tools used by people who like to deceive in order to get their words out and hopefully inoculate you against it. Hopefully not teach you how to be the next conspiracy theorist and you, well, I, I can't even remember the guy's name, the, the guy in America that's an idiot. Um, don't be like that, you know. Uh, there's so many, how do I narrow it down? Um, <laughs> um, I wanna talk a little bit more about that the, the hands piece, the cyanotype ones. Details matter in marketing. They really matter. And I really love what James has done here in that there's such a deep focus on the hands because what you do not realize, I, I do a little bit of photography as well. I, I, I express my art through photography. And when it comes to using um, models in particular, every detail matters. And it can be quite awkward when I say, excuse me, can I pose you? I just need to move that. I just need to do this. I just, because it just frames the picture better. And the hands in particular are a very humanized part of the body. And so those do matter. I've got the whole Zoolander reference here of hand models being different from uh, male models. If you haven't watched Zoolander, don't waste your time. But it is an iconic part of my, my journey as a, as a marketer and as a young man growing up as well. But missing the details or 
not seeing the details does affect how effective your marketing, your engagement might be. Let me give you an example. This is a very famous ad campaign by Colgate. Um, and you can see the people sitting there. And it's kind of weird. And people walk past. And the whole campaign was this, when you see it a little clearer from this screen, there's stuff in their teeth. And the whole campaign is, you see, that's why clean teeth are important, because all of you focused on the green teeth and not the clean teeth and not the fact that she's got six fingers. Or the fact that she's got an extra arm. My goodness, you know, um, that there's a random ghostly arm. People focus on the teeth so quickly and said, that's why you need to buy our floss. They knew that they would focus on that certain thing, and as a result, they were able to market floss, more so than six fingers or the like. Now, there are other factors, other design elements and photography elements in this. They've put the dirty teeth right in the middle. Okay? They've got clean teeth as a decoy next to them, so it highlights those things. All those things they don't say, but still highlight that function. Now, um, hands are a really important part, especially when you're displaying uh, items, when you're displaying things. I took a photo of a tomato about 10 years ago. For whatever reason, that photo of me holding my tomato went viral. Um, if you Google the word tomato, my hand was the number one image search for about three months. Uh, it was m viewed millions of times. And the hate I got from people, because apparently I had mud under my nails. Some people were asking me, where did I get my ring from? All these sorts of things. People focus on those things that aren't important. I just said, I usually kill everything I grow, but I'm very proud of my tomato. And, and I took this photo, went viral, top of the front page of Reddit. It sat there for ages, blah, 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 blah. But I had dirty nails because I've been in the garden. And people picked up on that. And for them, it distracted them from my gorgeous photo of a tomato. Um, but details matter. If the, if the hands were different, that would affect how people perceive it. So that focus on the hands, I think, is really nice. And the use of cyanotype as well, just to kind of break convention a little bit. Usually we see black and white. Usually we see color. Sometimes we might see saturation changes. But we won't see cyanotype so much. So I think it's pretty cool. Uh, I want to talk about conventions just as we wrap up a little bit. Conventions are really important. Um, and conventions kind of say, this is how things should be. And if things are in this order, it is easier for you to process and understand. Wireframes are in a great example of a convention. So this piece of art here um, uh, to your left is, is wireframe. And it's kind of a representation of what a blank website looks like, that it's full of gaps, and you plug in your content. But effectively, it is the same structure every single time. It's just with your content as a marketer. And the consumers will receive that, and they will see it that way. Now, you might go, I've never noticed that before. Is that really important? Guarantee you it is. If you go onto any site that sells stuff, at the top right-hand corner is your basket. That's where the little symbol is. And when you put something in that basket, the number changes to one, two, three. If that was in the bottom left-hand corner, you wouldn't be able to find it. If it wasn't having a number there or the number was green, people would pick up on it and go, that's weird. We know this. We know that conventions matter, so we put those things in the top right-hand corner. Across the top, we have a banner, because it's the first thing you see. Now, especially in Western cultures, especially those with an Anglo background, we read top left to bottom right. And so the stuff at the top banner is the most important. And they will capture your attention, evoke an emotion. That has to be there. If it's not there, you kind of go, this is a bland, weird website. I'm not going to use it. All that stuff fits in to what a wireframe is. Now, we use conventions for a reason, because humans operate more efficiently when heuristics are accessible. 
if you are not using those heuristics or those rules of thumb or where people think stuff should be, then people have to think a bit harder. And if they think too hard, they're not going to pay attention too long. They're going to say, this is too much energy. I'm out of here. So I use the word operate, kind of making you think that you are robots. You're not. You're independent beings, but we do manipulate you like robots. Um, heuristics make profits far easier to come by. If I made you think too hard and it took too much energy, the likelihood of you buying from me drops significantly. So we use heuristics. Wireframes activate those heuristics. So if we have a structure, a template, a format that you understand and you know about, much easier for you to get money, um, get money off you. But sometimes we break conventions to get a response. And that response can be quite an emotional one. I had a PhD student some years ago called Li Lange, and Li Lange wanted to look at uh, when there was a collaboration or cooperation between sound and the content being used, and when there was purposeful dissonance between sound and the content being used. So he did a bunch of bank ads and created a bunch of bank ads um, with a voiceover and blah, 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 some with classical music and then some with heavy metal music, just to see what would difference. Because you don't think of banks and think heavy metal music, you think more likely classical music. Now, the classical music ads were liked more, people understood them better, they kind of made sense, they, they were, it's a bank ad, I don't care. The heavy metal music made people think a lot more, they're like, I noticed that, I noticed the details a lot more, and the retention after six months was significantly higher. They're like, I remember that stupid bank ad with the heavy metal music, and I remember it was Kiwi Bank, or whatever else it might be. So the, not only the attention, but the retention was higher. After six months, dropped away to being the same as the other one. We don't really pay attention that much to ads, so we don't care so much. Um, here's an example that I think the Washington Post did, or the New York Times did, to try and break conventions. This is Joshua Bell, one of the best violinists in the world. They asked him and his $3.5 million Stradivarius violin to go into the subway and play some music for a while and see how much money he would make. The night, the day of his concert, his concert was that night, and he made $32 in tips, and that was less than price of one seat at his sold out concert. Because out of context, it does not make sense for this stuff to be here. So we try to lump stuff in context. We try to put people together. We try to make sure we fit in, belong, because that makes sense. When it's out of context, people go, that doesn't fit, therefore it must be wrong or bad, or whatever else it might be. Kind of make sense? Now, I don't want to be too mean to those of you in the room who are born and bred in Ototahi, um, but a common question that is asked is, what high school do you go to? Everyone knows it. What high school do you go to? It's just a common way of connecting. It's not a common way of connecting in many other parts of, of New Zealand uh, or overseas, but what high school did you go to if they knew that you grew up here? And for people in Ototahi, it's like, oh, cool, I want to see if there's a connection maybe. But for those of us who are outside, it's kind of like, oh, you want to lump me. Is it wrong that I, my kids go to Burnside? Is it wrong that my kids go to Te Aratai College? Is it wrong that I might have gone to, God forbid, Hagley? Ha, <laughs> awful, you know? <laughs> what's wrong? What, what's, it's, it's okay. But we need to find ways to try and break this. So I kind of I kind of want to try and say I was homeschooled in a, in a community. You know, I learned to read at the age of 18, and now, look, I'm a professor, just to see what people think. So, wow, low standards at UC. Um, um, <laughs> I could keep talking about this for ages, but I don't want to, because my time is nearly up. But I thought of some of the things that might be interesting to think about. Atmospherics is a really common one. How many people like eating KFC? Let me be honest. A couple of people. How many people like the smell of fried chicken? A lot more people. That's why KFC always smells like fried chicken outside, and less so inside. 
you smell the fried chicken, you go, that smells nice. And then once a year when my wife and I go, yeah, let's get KFC, and we take a bite and we say, we have made a terrible mistake. <laughs> what are we doing? It smells so good at the time. But, it's, but they know this, atmospherics matter. So they pump that stuff out, not as a, well, we don't want it inside the, um, the restaurant, it's to attract people in. Um, placement of, uh, of things, the way, way things are placed around, the way you are placed here, uh, the, the way that you are presented yourselves matter. Does it, is it congruent? Somatic markers, is there a, a, an emotion tied to something? And if that emotion is tied to it, how can we manipulate that? I wanna talk about in the sensory nostalgia very quickly. Um, uh, smell is one of the most powerful senses when it comes to building nostalgia. Like when you smell home cooking, like your mum has cooked something, you go, oh my goodness, this takes me back to my childhood. I saw my parents for the first time in about three years just this summer, and my mum cooked. I'm like, oh, I feel, I, f I definitely feel home. Even though home for us was another country at the time, now we're here, and I could be in my mum's kitchen, and she's hitting me like she did when I was a kid, and all these other, it made me feel like home. But I mean, these are sensory markers. <laughs> I, I don't know if she hit me this time. No, I don't think so. Um, but these are sensory markers. Or maybe it's not home cooking, but maybe you're in the mall and someone walks past you and they have the same aftershave or perfume as an ex of yours. And you go, oh dear God. <laughs> or, oh dear God. You know, depending on what the relationship was like. Those things are really powerful. Marketers know this, they use this. Other things that marketers use with regards to sensory, if you go to farmers, uh, you can see that they have hard lino floors in the gangways because they want you to move faster. We walk faster on hard floors and we walk slower on carpet and softer floors. And so when you get to the clothing area, it suddenly turns to carpet because they want you to stop, think, try things. But then when you're moving between areas, hurry up. You are wasting people's time, you're in people's way. Move it on. McDonald's used to do this as well overseas. They don't do it so much here, but they play more high beat, faster music during the rush hours because they want you to eat and hurry up and get out. And during the slower hours, they play softer, slower music because an empty restaurant looks like a bad restaurant. And we don't even realize this, but it has enough of a significant effect that it changes us because every little nudge makes a significant difference and every little significant difference makes more, more money at the end of the day. This is pretty much all I want to finish on. Uh, again, going back to old school, movie nostalgia references. Um, we are not power packs, we are data packs. All the things you do online in particular, every time you give a like, even though it might disappear from your view, it is measured, it is monitored. Even the time you take while you're going through the, your page or your feed, the longer you pause adds into the algorithm. Uh, how many people here are on TikTok? Couple of people. Uh, like the master students going, yes, we are young. <laughs> um, uh, um, TikTok's fascinating because it's not just what you like, but it's how long you spend and it's down to the millisecond. So if you pause for even one second longer, it monitors that and then suddenly you do that for a couple of weeks longer and your For You page or the page that is dedicated to your feed fills up with that stuff over and over again. To the extent very few people who use TikTok will show you their FYP, their For You page, because it's quite a personal thing. Mine is full of football and wrestling, I think. You know, it's really boring. Uh, I, oh, no, no, there's no, there's, there's no photographers on the TikToks. <laughs> oh, and, 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 and political stuff. So, so mine's very boring, but someone else will have something very different. Now, you can purge your data, you can look at it, and you see what's there. It's not gone forever. Um, uh, do I admit to this? Yeah, go on, I admit to this. I was one tiny part of the team that helped bring flybys into New Zealand all those years ago, decades ago sort of thing. 
And, and I remember sitting with, I think it was one of the big hardware stores we were trying to convince to buy into Flybys. And I'm like, so we have to give people stuff for buying stuff from us anyway. This doesn't make any sense. I'm like, you are not buying their loyalty. You are not buying their stuff and not giving them the stuff. You are buying their data. We will be able to tell you more about that person, not just what they bought from you, but what they bought from the 20, 30 other partners that have signed up to you. And you can now cater your advertising to them. And that's what Flybys is useful. It is a data storage. It makes money off you by selling your stuff to other people and then providing targeted ads to you. Because the last thing we like as consumers is advertising. We hate it unless it's relevant to us. If it's relevant to us, then we go, oh, this is interesting. I will pay attention to it. I will focus on it. How do we make it more relevant? We harvest your knowledge and your data, and we pump it back to you. We do a little experiment in my digital marketing class where we talk about a random brand, just openly. No one Googles it. No one searches for it. And the first person in the class to get a Facebook ad or an Instagram ad about that brand gets uh, usually a crunchy bar or something from me. Um, uh, and we pick one that usually young people know nothing about, never Googled before. So usually it's something like Fisherman's Friends. Uh, anyone actually know what fishermen's friends are? A few people. Okay, even the young people. This is great. Um, uh, and very few people have ever Googled fishermen's friends, where to buy them. You hardly ever see them. You don't see ads for them. The quickest we've ever seen is 20 minutes. That's someone. We don't even look, touch our phones. Just ambient talking. Google, Android will say, Android, Apple will say, we don't listen to you. We don't do any of that. It, the, the behavior is so quick and natural and repeated that it's impossible to overcome. So just be really weary and knowledgeable about that. And that's what I want to leave you with. Um, if you've been staring at the art and not paying attention to me, I understand. Um, but as some takeaways, I want you to know that marketing, psychology, propaganda all work by understanding you. The more we understand about you, the more we can drive things back to you. We can provide solutions to you and hopefully make money off you. These forces are powerful especially when unseen. If you know it, you're going to switch off because as savvy consumers, we don't want to be advertised to. But when we don't realize it's happening, it's kind of like, hey, this is something that's beneficial to me. Ha ha, I have fooled them. I have got the better value on the subscription. Um, the best inoculation is to be aware, mindful. But it takes a lot of effort. This is why heuristics exist. It takes a lot of time, a lot of effort to do this stuff. And art, I feel, is a wonderful, wonderful medium to help us have this discussion. Um, I have been told not to draw too much attention to him, but James is in the room. Uh, so thank you, James, for the work you've done, not just this one, but previous exhibitions you've done as well. I think it's a fantastic way to try and provide this, so I really appreciate it. I'm not going to point him out, um, but I really appreciate you taking the time to create this so that we can explore it in our own time, but I've had the opportunity to talk about it. I'm going to finish with an opportunity for Focado. So, oh, and as a good marketer, I should tell you that it is our 150th anniversary at UC. Um, please give us money. I, I, I don't know. <laughs> but, yeah, um, do, yeah, send your children, friends to study with us. I don't know. No, uh, I, I want to open it up for thoughts, reflections, comments, criticisms, queries. If you need to run, please don't offend me. You know, do you feel I'll be offended? I'm, I'm not easily offended at all. Mark. Um, thank you very much, um, On your journey from 18-year-old being illiterate and maybe starting to blunder and model <laughs> to professor of uh, marketing at UC, I assume there's been huge shifts in the technologies available yeah. to marketers both in the industry and as academics. And I just wonder, sort of, get like Spider-Man question of like great power and great responsibility that marketing is to have moved from something that is discreet to something that 
There's a question there, but a great comment. I'll, I'll see if I can distill it. Um, which is a, you, you'll make an awesome academic, you know. <laughs> um, um, but with, with the advancement of technology, um, has there been a change in the rights and responsibilities of marketers, knowing how ubiquitous it can be? And the quote given by Eleanor Catton is that going online is not an innocent act and that all of this can have an influence. Yes, the technology in the last 20 years since I was in industry through to academia on my journey now has changed. Literally, our job was to take masses and masses of data, mash it together, link it together, and then use that to profile consumers and then sell that back to people so that they can hopefully make better business choices. The only way we could do that is by mashing the data together, sending it off to the UK in a thing called a zip disk. If anyone remembers zip disk, we would post it over. They had a supercomputer that would crunch the numbers, and then they would send it back to us, and then we would sit there with this 12 billion line Excel spreadsheet go, all right, now from this, we now have data, I think. You know, we have information. This is how old that data was. Nowadays, this happens instantaneously because it can happen on my laptop, it can happen on a phone. Does that mean there's more responsibilities from us as marketers? Absolutely, but I am fully of the camp that marketing is a technology and a tool. It is up to us how we wield it. Um, let me tell you a very quick story. Um, I used to teach uh, in the UK a course called Social Marketing and Marketing for Behavioral Change to be pro-social. How do we use marketing to benefit society? One of my students, Alan, who I loved a bit and I still catch up with, took everything I knew and he went and worked for a tobacco agency and he uses the same tools to sell cigarettes. Now my co-lecturer at the time was heartbroken, refused to speak to him, and I said, this is our job as educators, is to empower and to... Kira. Thank you. Um, is to empower and instill uh, knowledge into people, but values and ethics need to accompany that as well, and we need to put those together. I'm really sorry about that, but that's okay. Yes, Henry. So yeah, thank you for the presentation though. So I have two YouTube accounts and they, I get completely different uh, recommendations. I just randomly switch between the two. So like the question I want to ask is like, how much does default impact our behavior? Like whether it's watching videos, whether it's buying things, and yeah. what's, the, what's your experience on that? Uh, so the comment to the question is, um, uh, has two YouTube accounts and they get very different recommendations as a result of that. And how much does the default impact what we do? If you are mindless in your consumption of online material in particular, the default is very, very powerful. We all start at the same base and um, Google tries to guess. Now you can check what, your Google, what Google thinks about you. You can go onto your Google privacy settings and they'll say, we think you're a 30, uh, I saw this today, thinks I'm a 35 to 40 year old man, yes. <laughs> says I have no kids. I'm like, maybe I should Google more stuff about kids, but clearly I don't care about it. <laughs> says I have no kids, says I'm into action movies and sports. I'm like, okay, yeah, maybe, you know. Yeah, so it has a pretty good, um, oh, and, Paul, and my wife and I share the same account, so she gets a lot of news about Liverpool Football Club and stuff like that. Um, 
the default settings matter if you are mindless to it. Now, if you purposely create two platforms in order to try and create two completely separate, mutually exclusive identities online, that becomes fascinating. I have a few of these things that if you're online, they call alts, and you kind of want to create an alternative of yourself and see how the internet, the world, reflects back at you. Um, it also impacts how you are advertised out to the world. So the algorithm, whichever platform you use, will recommend your content to people that it thinks that content would link with. And so when you have two different platforms and you use the content very differently, you might see some of your friends going, I really loved your video on XYZ, and others going, I never saw that one at all. Because they come from different camps and it's very, very targeted or more increasingly targeted. So far greater responsibility from us. I don't think that really answers your question, but I said it confidently. Thank you. Um, yes, sir. Oh, what smell should there be in an art gallery? Honestly, I would love to see an exhibition that is built around atmospherics to match whatever's going on. I would love the temperature in this room to be a couple of degrees colder with the, the ice next to me, and just to see whether it changes people's perception. I would love to see, like we, we saw the lithographs and the etchings and the very naturalistic way. I would love to see something herbal or nature-oriented in there, just to see if people spend more time and then come out with a better experience as a result. Is this stuff well established? Kinda. Some people say it's pop psychology, but at the same time, these all could be little nudges that push you along just that 1%, 2% further. The idea of making a revolutionary change in your attitude and your behavior is probably so difficult, unless there's been a major life transformational experience, that the likelihood of you changing that is very low. Even people who have had major health diagnoses don't change their behavior completely, even if death is around the corner if they don't. It's really hard to change people. But doing a little bit here and there does push us towards different outcomes. So Mel, take that away. See if you can run a, um, a, an exhibition. Say, so, ah, it smells really smoky in here. <laughs> or whatever. It might be an interesting thing. Maybe there's an artist who wants to incorporate atmospherics into what they do. That would be quite cool to see if people come away knowing that they felt differently, but they're not quite sure why, because Marcus has been doing this for ages. Final quarter of a quarter. Yeah, go on. Oh, yeah, go on. No, no. We need to all come up to you. Yeah. Oh, yeah. Thanks. Yeah, no, you, go, you go first. You go first. Yeah, I think it's like more of a generational element to these things because I feel like having grown up with a lot of this, I'm quite savvy with being advertised to on social media. Yeah. And I will pick up really quickly on natural advertising. Yeah. Do you it, think it's a generational element? Is there a generational element? Yes, I think there is. In both ways. We know that people more prone to scams and being advertised to and losing their money to um, uh, un un unhelpful and unhealthy behaviors are more older, more trusting, don't realize that someone's trying to scam them, just thought they were being nice, blah, 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 blah. We know younger people are more quick to spot an ad and realize this is branded content. What we also know in general that young people don't care as much. They're quite happy. Like if it, we, we ran a study on what's called um, I can't even remember what it's called. Native advertising, it was called at the time, which is making an ad and making it look like a news article. Uh, and it's actually branded content, paid for by the brand. Now, when our older consumers realized that this was actually a paid for ad in the shape of a news article, they were offended. They were horrified. How dare you? You have violated my trust because I thought this was a news outlet and independent. Young people are like, yeah, everything's like that. Don't care. 
All right. Um, how many people have a smartwatch or a Fitbit on? I have my Fitbit on. Few people do. Uh, they did a study in a, a, a stadium in the U.S. and um, they asked people as they went how many people are wearing a smartwatch or a Fitbit, and asked them to say, and they said on average how many third-party companies are linked to you at this time, and they would guess. And on average, people thought maybe about four or five different companies are using their data at the moment. On average, it's about 53. Um, different companies are monitoring your data while you're wearing your watch. It's not just Fitbit, it's not just Garmin, they sell that onto other people and that's why. So let me check my heart rate, I'm probably going to get some heart medication warnings. No, it's not too bad. But I mean like when it just monitors your behavior, monitors your effort, blah 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 blah, sells that on. And we don't even realize it and a lot of people when they do hear it, especially young people, are like eh, don't really care. So when you see in the news all this stuff about data privacy, 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 you've got to protect yourself, a lot of the young people I speak to go, I really don't care. My life's already out there. I don't, I, it's out of my control, so I might as well just reap the benefits without worrying about the negative side. Is that kind of what we're thinking? So yeah, much quicker to spot it, much less likely to care is the experience we're seeing. Older people, far less likely to spot it, but when they do spot it, really freak out about it and really clamp down, double down on, on controlling it. Juanita. <laughs> Great question. So are there more structures and um, policies in place that protect us, knowing the changes out there, or, or who's it up to? Um, no, there are not much. We have some cool things in New Zealand. We have NetSafe. We have the Digital Harm Act. Neither of them are going to protect everyone all the time, and neither of them are going to keep up. Um, with my former PhD student, Maya Golf-Papish, we wrote a paper literally looking at trying to understand and control trolling. Uh, and trolling behavior and the sort of the elements that go into trolling. And I could go on for another three hours on this sort of topic. Um, but there's other factors that are there. What the standard response is right now is what we call consumer responsabilization. Building your capacity up to know and then it's up to you to be personally responsible for protecting yourself and those around you. The problem is, especially when you were talking about kids, a lot of parents don't know. And so they really find it difficult to, to support their children or, or, or guide them healthfully in this way. Um, I feel sorry for my kids because they have a dad that literally studies and teaches this and they're like, why can't I have my phone in my room until 4 a.m.? Because it's not good for you, all right? And so, oh, and then, yeah, especially my 15-year-old, my she wakes up and said, yeah, my friends were sending really unhealthy messages to each other at 2 a.m. I said, yeah, aren't you glad you weren't being woken up by this because that feeds into what's going on in your mind and that not only disturbs your sleep, which we know is vital for young people, also really ship your mental health because you wake up going, my friends are fighting, I might be part of this, I'm, you know, you're not thinking straight, blah, blah, blah. So we have really strict rules in our house and we kind of enable them to do more, but it started off with, you don't even get a phone. You know, you're not getting a phone until you know how to use a phone. If you do get a phone, if you're getting on social media, this is the guidance we're providing in the structures. We, ha we had their passwords for a long time just so that we can sit down with them, talk about stuff. And then we try to find a place and a space where they can openly talk to us about some of the difficulties. Our youngest definitely talks to us much more, too much. I don't give a shit what's going on. I don't care who's fighting, all right? Work it out yourself, you're 15 now. 
the oldest is a little bit more closed down. So sometimes I do worry, but I also trust her that the foundation has been built. So yes, it is really up to us, but none of us are tooled enough. I could study this, I could be an expert in this, I could teach on this, and I still will be behind the curve because the, the, the rapid pace of change is so fast. By the time I've come up with a solution, there's something else toxic that we need to be worried about. So what I would really encourage is have, thank you, is have really strong foundations that are universal, outside of social media, that are outside of marketing. Talk to us. You can always talk to mum, even if it's something that you've done wrong. Make sure you've got a good support network around. Make sure you've got these sorts of things, and whether it's out in the public, whether it's on social media, the kids feel like they can come to mum and dad as a safe place. Does that make sense? Free guided tour is about to start, so I really do encourage you to do that. Can I pass it back to you, Mel, to, to close up? Kia ora. I'll just say thank you so much. It's so interesting to hear a little bit more around some of these ideas. And thank you for coming along today. Um, please stay and linger and look at the show. Um, it closes this weekend. So um, with all this in your head, you might look at it slightly differently now about these um, things. And I'll linger around for a little bit if you do want to ask any questions about the works. Um, but yeah, thank you. So join me in thanking Akant.